So, Hare Krishna. Um, so, uh, before before we get started, I want to just um, maybe actually have a we can get yeah we can. Um, I'm so grateful to have all you guys here. This is a nice, massive turnout. This is our two-year anniversary for us coming together and sharing bhakti and, and community. And I'm so grateful to have all of you guys here. I can't believe it's been already been two years. And to top it off, we have um, some cupcakes by Radhika a little later. You can put this on the table. You can see you better. Yeah, yeah, that's much better. And then to top it off, we have His Holiness Radhika Swami, Howard Resnick, who has um, who's come from many distant lands. He, uh, he's tra he travels all around the world. <clears throat> By large, is that um, you know he, st he started uh, he became a part of the uh, Krishna conscious movement back in 1972. 69. 69. So Dating I myself, but <laughs> <laughs> 1969, and he took uh, a vow of celibacy to become uh, sannyasi in 1972. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. And and there's just so many wonderful accolades we can speak about, Marge. But just to give you a few few things, he has a PhD in Sanskrit. He's fluent in seven languages. He's uh, authored uh, two books. He's working on a third three-part series book, Mahabharata. And uh, it's it's thirty years of uh, research and experience is it's going into this uh, three-year three-part book. And it's going to be incredible. It's going to be the, I personally think it's going to be the best version of what we've seen in the novel. <clears throat> and uh, he's here to share with us tonight about the uh, power of positive conflict. And so this is an interesting subject. Um, so yeah, we're, we're going to actually have a fight here to show. So without further ado, I'm really grateful to have Raj here. Um, Thank you. Thank you much. For Why don't you introduce, is there anything else you want to say about the topic tonight? Or? Um, uh, yeah, maybe, you know. Yeah, because what you told me. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When I, when I bring up the word conflict, the first thing that comes up is a little bit of tension, a little bit of like a, a separation of, a separation of understanding another person's perspective. So conflict creates a distance between people. And most of us think of conflict in a negative way. But to me, conflict actually can uh, provide solutions. It can take uh, processes and, and projects and um, different perspectives of people and allow for, uh, allow to make holes in those kinds of projects or perspectives so that we can make that perspective more stronger. We can develop, uh, <clears throat> develop stronger relationships. And to me, the power of conflict actually develops a stronger bond when it's used in a positive way. And so we're going to kind of explore today a little bit about what the, po the power of positive conflict, how it not only reflects in uh, our regular relationships, devotional relationships, and how it actually affects maybe the, the, um, the whole trend of our history. Sometimes, you know, there's many times in our history where conflict has not been used. And um, what I'm looking for is when you don't, when you're not having conflict, it's more of a consensus. Everyone is consensual. Yeah. And in that state, to me, I believe that a lot of things that could have been said or should have been said, perspectives that have been held in the heart are not expressed. And so a lot of deeper problems can actually come from the lack of using 
positive conflict. And so Marge is going to go a little bit into what that's about today. Thank you. Thank you, Vasun. So here we go. Um, actually, which is one of the most popular words in the right Christian movement, actually. Um, <laughs> I like to start a discussion of a particular word or concept by going to the dictionary. <clears throat> so I'm going to look up conflict. So conflict in the Google dictionary, which is probably <coughs> one of the worst English dictionaries on earth. But anyway, it says a serious disagreement, <clears throat> a serious disagreement, because for example, if I say, I thought the pizza was good, and Basu says, yeah, it was all right, that's not really a conflict. <laughs> because hopefully, anyway. So a serious disagreement, <laughs> although you didn't say that. I didn't say that. <laughs> I don't want to get him in trouble. I think he liked the pizza. So a serious disagreement or argument, typically a protracted one, which means it just goes on and on. Uh, Interestingly, the example I give in this dictionary is the eternal conflict between the sexes. <clears throat> Don't kill the messenger. So, <laughs> and also it can be, obviously in a, in a more egregious sense, a prolonged armed struggle overseas conflicts, a condition in which a person experiences a clash of opposing wishes or needs. You can have an internal conflict. And that's something we have to talk about also because I think a person who's growing, who's healthy, has some degree of internal conflict. Maybe I'll just say a word here to jump into the topic because, <clears throat> well, to be honest, I'm, well, last definition here, an incompatibility, an incompatibility between two or more opinions, principles, or interests. There was a conflict between his business and domestic life. So, so conflict can mean just two things that somehow don't, go together. So um, I am a fan of dialectical thinking. And um, of course, this was probably popularized in Western philosophy by Professor Hegel, philosopher Hegel, and then his uh, famous student, Karl Marx. Let's not shout out for Karl Marx. Um, <laughs> You know, it's interesting, just, I, I just want to throw this in, <clears throat> little anecdote, that uh, if you go to typical universities nowadays, which tend to be very liberal, not everybody, of course, but it's still somehow okay if you, for example, have a sickle and hammer. Yeah. yeah. It's still, you know, I mean, a lot, most people are going to think, wow, you know, you're kind of really 20th century, but still, you can do that. You can have a sickle and hammer. If you go, let's say, on a typical college campus with a, a swastika, you know, with a circle around it, as in the old German swastika, probably people won't like you. So, but what's interesting is, historically, the communists or Marxists actually, in the 20th century, killed more people than Hitler. That's a historical fact. If you look at Stalin, Stalin was sick beyond what's in any textbook, I think. And Stalin killed, we're talking about tens of millions of people, tens of millions. And of course, um, Mao, Chairman Mao, who was China. deranged yeah, in China, 
and killed tens of millions of people. So the communists actually killed more people than the Nazis, but anyway, that's interesting, isn't it? But you don't hear that oftentimes in certain circles. So, but in any case, um, so I, I, I got off into that tangent because we were talking about the dialectic. So I'll explain what, a, what the dialectic is in its classical formulation. Um, and, if, and you know what Marx did with Hegel, but that's not so interesting. The dialectic means, the idea is that the way history moves forward, to understand why Hegel was, came up with this, that, you have to understand that we're, we're actually gonna get to conflict, but I'm trying to put it in historical perspective. Um, <clears throat> it's hard to exaggerate the, the effect that, um, the effect that um, Sir Isaac Newton had on, on the world. Because the way I put it is before Newton and, and you know, his physics and all that, really people in the Western world really lived in Middle Earth. I mean, there were trolls under bridges and there were like all kinds of spirits and everything. In other words, they were like, kind of like devotees. So, but they were, <laughs> but they like this sort of this magical, they really lived like in a Harry Potter type world. And then, and then, <laughs> And then when Newton showed that actually the world is rational and there are laws, and which was an older classical idea. I mean, I, I, I will get to the topic, but it's just, I just find this fascinating. I mean, the old classical idea of the Stoics going back thousands of years in the classical world was that God is a supremely rational being. Not only is he merciful and all powerful and he can beat you up if you really, you know, irritate him, but, but actually, God is a supremely rational being. And they called this rational power of God uh, the logos, from which we get words like logic and the logos of everything. So, for example, the logos of the earth is called geology, the logos of geo, the earth, or the logos of life, a rational explanation. And the Greek word for life is bios, so that's biology. Don't know much about biology. Anyway. <laughs> So, so the idea was that because God is a supremely rational being, that when he creates the world, he, he creates a rational world. So if you study any aspect of this world, like suke in Greek, they spelled psyche. I mean, it's spelled, we would say psyche was the mind or conscious. So the science, the logos of consciousness is psychology. And so if you study any aspect of the world, you find this reason this divine reason because the creator is supremely rational and the logos therefore is also in us. So, so it's this idea and that's really to use the common phrase where I'm coming from. I really, I really see the world that way. I mean, I personally, I realize there's all kinds of, you could say supernatural, amazing spiritual things going on, but ultimately even at the level of the supernatural, which in a sense in Greek, the Greek word for supernatural is metaphysical metaphysics so that's pure greek metaphysics so um the idea is we can make sense of things we don't just live in a in a, in a magical there's a difference between mysticism and a magical world a mystical world means there are things beyond the, the material but they obey laws they're rational they're logical 
Whereas a magical world means it's just there's no logic. Like, for example, Harry Potter, if you, let's say, for example, if you take the hair of a raccoon and sprinkle some vinegar on it and then toss it over your left shoulder while chanting ooga ooga, then, you know, your wicked stepmother will slip and break her hip or something. And so, and it's not related to anything. It's not that, okay, that's because vinegar has this property and the hair of a raccoon has it. it there's no logic. There's no consistent rules or laws it's just magical so a mystical world is rational whereas a magical world is non-rational and so just last thing then i'll get to the point of conflict that because in the ancient world the ancient greco-roman world this notion of a, of a supremely rational and merciful god and ultimately a rational understandable creation was so popular that there was this small small new religious movement that was trying to attract intelligent people you know trying to make intelligent devotees so to speak and so they and so they wrote a book a few generations after their founder died in which they were trying to attract educated people to graphic. and so they began it by saying in the beginning was the logos which we translate the word in the beginning was the word but actually in the greek it's in the beginning was the logos it was an attempt to try to appeal to educated people in the greco-roman world so anyway, so going to the dialectic, so, so when Newton, that was part of the, in a sense, Newton was helping people in the West to get back to that rational picture of things, that we don't just live in a magical Middle Earth. The universe is actually obeys laws, and you can study it, and you can understand it. Even, and, and so in the Western world, there was this tremendous enthusiasm to find the logos of everything. Like, and that's why you've got geology, physiology, biology, sociology. Actually, they're so frustrated because they lost the uh, astro word. Astrology went to the, to the bad guys and they just got stuck with astronomy. But anyway, so, so, so Hegel took on this ambitious project. He wanted to find the history of everything, the history of all human history or the, the logos of all human history. Like, is there a science of all human behavior over thousands of years? Can you actually identify a science? of human behavior. So apart from, you know, I won't go into what success he had, but he concluded that things move dialectically. And that, and that will get into the conflict thing because the, 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 the center of the dialectic is conflict. So you see, this was not an age-related space out. I actually, <laughs> I actually had an idea where I was going. So the, um, the dialectic very simply stated is this, that there is a thesis. And the thesis just means the way things are now the status quo. And then something opposes that. There's a conflict. Something opposes that. It's just like, for example, let's say you live in a small town, you have the only shoe store in town. So you have a comfortable life and someone opens a competing shoe store. Now there's a conflict. So it could be anything like that. It could be a relationship where you think you've got a great relationship, you and your partner are really happy together. And then for no good reason, you can find this person's not happy or starts to criticize you or, or, or whatever. Like that song, you've lost that loving feeling. You criticize little things I do. Anyway, it's a line from, I can explain our entire philosophy of Krishna consciousness in terms of 60 songs, but. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that conflict, something that opposes the status quo, that opposes the way things are now is called the antithesis, the antithesis. And ultimately, when two things are in conflict, 
So I'm, I'm creating a framework for our discussion. When two things are in conflict, eventually something happens and people like wars don't go on forever uh, unless they're American wars, but <laughs> I mean, I mean, wars. so generally wars don't go on forever or bad relationships don't go on forever because people either make up or, you know, figure out a way to, to make it work or they separate. And so therefore, when there's an antithesis, you have this conflict, eventually there's the synthesis. And, and the S-Y-N, which is Greek, and the Greeks pronounce soon, actually comes from Sanskrit. It's the Sanskrit S-A-N, sun, like sankirtan. So just like sankirtan means together kirtan, like everything, the kirtan with everything, everyone together, that's sankirtan. So the Greek version of that was S-Y-N. So the synthesis just means the thesis of everything coming together. Another way, another example, you can look at it is the conflict that happens when a powerful river finally, you know, goes into the sea. And there's, you know, there's salt water in the ocean, then there's this powerful river water. For example, the Amazon is so powerful, it's said that you can still drink the waters, fresh water for like, I don't know what it is, 50 miles out to sea or something from the mouth of the Amazon River. But eventually you get the synthesis, these, these waters mix and you get a new reality. Which, which came out of this conflict. So basically, Hegel said that that's the way history moves forward. And as we know, things don't always get better. Sometimes things get worse. And so you made that point, you know, a good conflict. And so uh, you could say conflict is inevitable for, and, and so why is conflict inevitable? And there's some obvious reasons for that. Number one is that um, we're all individual souls. We're all unique. Krishna made all of us unique as opposed to making all of us identical. I mean, he has that industrial capacity. Krishna could have made us all the same, but that would be a very boring world. And so Krishna made us all unique. God made us all completely unique. Now that alone, you could say, would not guarantee conflict in the sense of a serious disagreement. But there's something else that gets added here. Not only are all of us unique, but as in the material world, in a material body, to some degree, whatever that degree is in, 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 in an individual's case, to some degree, we are selfish. To some degree. Now, there is a pure state of the soul. Uh, and we want to get back to that pure state of the soul. But meanwhile, back in on the material ranch, you know, we are all works in progress. We're all works in progress and therefore to some degree, we're selfish. And to some degree, all of us want to have our own way to some degree. And so, and people have different tastes because they're unique, because everyone's unique. And so therefore, the conflict is, is whoops, uh-oh, I was told, actually, what did I do? Oh, actually, I am on the screen. I opened another thing. I'm sorry. This is not narcissism at its worst. It's just that <laughs> my media handler told me to make sure I was on the screen. So. <laughs> if you want to see that, come, you know, make it a private appointment with me. <laughs> so... Um, so here we are in the material world and, and 
you know, it would be bad enough if we were simply a large collection of individuals, each unique, each with their own will, each to some extent selfish. That would already be a problem. But it gets worse because human beings or souls, you could say, are both individual and social. They're both private, but they're also public. Because as we know, without, actually it's a little, um, is it? I guess it's all right. I'm trying to, I'm just trying to, because I look a little darker than I should be. That's good. So um, human beings or, or souls in general, they identify with groups. Without society, you couldn't, you could not use language. The fact that you can understand and communicate in any language at all is only because uh, of society. What computer simulations show, because you know they, they try to get computers that can have conversations with you, and whenever you, you, know, you call up a certain number and get a computer, you realize how imperfect that technology is. Hi, I'm a computer and I can understand complete sentences, just not the ones that you're going to speak. <laughs> so, and the reason af that after all these years, that technology is so important because it turns out that ordinary human conversation is almost unimaginably complex. It's not only the words we say, it's the particular order, it's the nuances, it's the tone of voice, it's even things like, you know, hand expressions. And so on. So it turns out that what we take for granted, just kind of like, let's talk, is actually extremely complicated. Language is extremely complex. And so, um, and we can only do language, and we can only, because it gets to the point, like, how much could we understand? How much would we feel if we didn't have language? In other words, could you really develop complex emotions? Could you really develop deep relationships if you, if you couldn't think? And could you think without language? Thinking itself tends to be verbal, tends to be you know, language-based. Because every time you learn a new word, it, it's a new concept. Like for example, um, delicious or, or exquisite. I mean, delicious and exquisite are not the same. In some ways they're synonymous, but so, if you have a large, you know, whatever your vocabulary is, they're all concepts. And so it's not just that you already have the ideas in your head, you just need the word. It's the words are giving you the ideas also. And so I, I and I could give many other examples. I mean, the fact you can walk down the street and it's the odds are in your favor, you won't be murdered on your way home tonight, uh, is because they're society. So I think in our, in our modern world, uh, some people in the world have gone way too far on the side of individualism, which is simply an illusion. It doesn't reflect reality. Reality is that there's a balance between our individual life and our social life, our private life and our public life, and our duties. We have, we have duties to ourselves, but we have duties to society because there's no free lunch. I mean, we wouldn't exist the way we are without society and their debts. And, and so the reason I mention this is because people identify with larger groups, such as their family and they, or their community or their society or they, but what happens with these identifications is 
if someone's not really in spiritual consciousness, or as we say, Krishna consciousness, there's an attachment. So in, in, in the common verb that we use in, our, in the modern world to express that is to identify with something. I mean, that word is used all the time, like, hey, I can identify with that. But, <laughs> you know, if you think about what this word really means, it means that you take something on as part of your identity. I mean, if you, if you look seriously at that expression, to identify with something, or you cannot identify with something. And so when people belong to a family, well, everyone does. When, you know, you're, you belong to a family, a bio family. <laughs> <laughs> my theological opponent's trying to sabotage this. So, <laughs> so when you identify with a family, you really, I mean, as Krishna explains, Krishna talks a lot about this in the Bhagavad Gita, that when you become attached, because everyone's attached to themselves, like, you know, numero uno, right? I mean, everyone has to look out for big numero uno, number one. And so, so when you, just as we are all, to some extent, self-centered, we all look out for ourselves. We all see the world with ourselves as a center. And so when you literally identify, say, with the family, then somehow that family including you, becomes the center of reality. The only problem is there's like, you know, millions and millions of other families that think they are the center of reality. And then, of course, th th this, this, this gets kicked up to, let's say, national levels, like, you know, I'm an American, or someone, je suis français, you know, so I'm French, or, you know, whatever people think they are. Or they say in Mexico, viva la raza, right? So... So you get nations. Fortunately, we have a president now who, you know, doesn't do that stuff. He's, he's very <laughs> internationalist. In the sense that he wants to exploit everyone. <laughs> but when you, but that's what happens. So, so you get this us and them mentality, this us and them mentality, and you get conflict. Because let's say you go to a party. I mean, I'm thinking back when I used to go to parties. It's funny. I used to go to parties on in Cheviot Hills in Beverlywood because that's where I grew up. <laughs> and when Prabhupada was there, I used to go with Prabhupada to walk in Rancho Park. And I literally sit in the car with Prabhupada driving right past the houses where I went to parties. And, and it was like, wow. <laughs> so anyway, um, let's say you're at a party. And... You know, you want to be, let's say you're trying to get the attention of a particular person that you find attractive, but someone else is trying to get that person's attention. Or maybe I just want attention in general, and there's other people that want attention. There's all that tension of people competing to get the approval and the admiration of other people. And, and so, so what happens is I'm, I'm trying to lay the foundation for conflict. So there is a, uh, in, in postmodern thinking, which isn't all bad, um, they make this distinction between, uh, let, let, well, well, not distinction, but they talk about objectifying someone. That's a pejorative term. To objectify someone doesn't mean to see them objectively. That, it doesn't mean that. It means that every one of us is actually a subject. Every one of us is the center of our own life. Every one of us is a conscious subject. But if I'm so vain or so self-centered that I see you not as another subject, 
that, that you are the center of your own life. I see you as an object of my life. In other words, what can you do for me today? And whether you know I want to get money from you or someone may want to get uh, just attention or sexual favors or you know whatever someone wants or power like vote for me. So in other words, you are, you don't exist for yourself. The ultimate purpose of your life is not to pursue your own well-being. The ultimate purpose of your life is to serve my interests. And that's what's meant in that sort of that modern discourse of objectifying someone. And, and now we come to it. That's in a sense. I, and so when you have families, it's like our family is real. Like we're real people. And everyone that's not part of our family is sort of different degrees, sort of a descending scale of less real. <laughs> so people who are, okay, you're not family, but we're really close, you know, but you're not family. And then you get people, well, you're not family. We're not, we're just sort of like, as they used to say in England, nodding acquaintances. Or you're not family and I despise you. Or, you know, or, or you're not family, I just don't care about you. Like, if I, you know, like, I mean, every day in the newspaper, there's an obituary column and people die and it's, it, it doesn't really emotionally affect us that much if we don't know the people. Oh, the famous English poet John Donne said, ask not for whom the bell tolls, that famous thing, because the bell tolling means that someone has died and there was a funeral and they would ring the church bells. So he said, ask not for whom the bell tolls. In other words, okay, who died? Because I want to know whether I should be concerned. I want to know whether I should grieve. So, oh, oh, it's just that person. Well, never mind. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in that famous poem, John Donne said, ask not for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for you and it tolls for me. And so that, and so we get to the point of empathy the point of empathy. So if I identify the stronger, sorry, good English, the more strongly I identify <laughs> with my own family, the stronger, let's say the attachment, the more non-family is just somehow the less important other, they have less value. And what happens if you really identify with your country? Well, other countries, it's like every country for themselves. Like, okay, you know, as our fearless leaders declared, yeah, of course we're trying to rip you off and you're trying to rip us off. And it's just, you know, whoever made the, made, made the best ripper win. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, it, it's kind of like, it's a great picture of life, right? Very advanced picture of, of human life on earth. So that's why, because, and, and the more attached you are to one group, the more you hate, I mean, you really hate people who oppose that group. And so you can identify with your family, with your race, with your ethnic tradition, with your religion, that's a big one. In some parts of the world, wrong religion, sorry, I'm gonna kill you. You know, nothing personal, you just are in the wrong religion. <laughs> or you're in the wrong branch of the right religion. <laughs> which is also very common. And so there's more conflict. Among people, so just to throw in the line here, conflict is not, can easily be resolved or it can even be channeled into creative growth events if uh, people do not lose their empathy. If people, I mean, despite the fact that we disagree, I still see you as, as a soul. 
I still see was part of God. And, and according to Bhagavad Gita, in the entire universe, there's actually only one family, ultimately. Because Krishna, three times in the Gita, Krishna is referred to as a father and the mother, by the way. Hashtag also the mother. So, <laughs> so anyway, so actually we're all one family and it's just like, let's say people who are not really seriously sick don't harm their own family. You don't injure or kill or just do something really bad to your own, someone in your own family. I mean, you know, unless someone's really uh, got problems. Why? Because a normal person identifies with their family. And if I injure that person, I'm injuring myself. It's like, that's why we take so much pleasure in the success of our, you know, siblings or parents, because it reflects on us. Yeah, he's doing great. He made a ton of money or yeah, she's doing incredible things. And oh, yeah, that, that's, yeah, that's my family. And, and so when you have that empathy, when you identify with other people, you want to think well of them, because it reflects on you. Because you literally identify that person as part of your own of who you are. And so the real question is, how, what do we do so that everyone identifies with everyone else? And that, of course, is Krishna consciousness. You have to see things spiritually. And so among people who, like in a marriage, or I'm dating myself, let's say in a relationship, um, let's, say, let's, let's say two people in a relationship, and they, they don't forget that the other person is part of God. The other person is a soul. And therefore, sure, we disagree. I mean, I mean, if you think you're going to be with someone and not disagree, huh, what planet are you from? So, but the point is, when people keep their understanding that this person is, is divine, this person is part of God, and I'm part of God, and therefore we're family, uh, and, and I have to see that person through God's eyes. It's just like when you're a child, you know, I mean, I had three brothers when I was growing up, and basically it was four uber alpha males. And so you could imagine what family life was like. I mean, everyone's <laughs> fighting. And so, but it was a very close family. And our parents, I, I was very, very fortunate. And I had very good parents. And so therefore, you know, no one ever really injured anyone because you knew that, you know, because of the parents, because of the parents, because the parents, they have this love for all their children. And therefore, you know, you can't harm one of your siblings. And so when we see someone through God's eyes, through Krishna's eyes, in a sense, it gives us the freedom to have healthy conflicts, which brings us to the topic. Hey. So now, uh, so just to make sure no one asks for a refund, I'll talk about <laughs> the actual topic. You know, what does it mean to have a healthy conflict? And of course, I mean, in a sense, the first and, and most obvious answer a healthy conflict is one in which both parties are actually growing and, and, and somehow growing into better lives. So, you know, what would that look like? It's, this is not going to happen among selfish people. 
This is not going to happen. Even if one of the persons is selfish, it probably won't happen. It's not going to happen among very proud people. It's not going to happen among people who value getting their own way more than they value uh, the honor of having that relationship. And so I would say in, in the case of relationships, not only conjugal relationships, you know, two people get together, but even your friends. I mean, what kind of friends do you want in your life? And what kind of people do you want to work for, have work for you or have as your colleagues? You know, what kind of partners do you want in different kinds of undertakings? And I would say because some conflict is inevitable, you have to look for people who are mature enough, spiritually mature enough and mature enough as human beings and ethical enough so that when the inevitable disagreements arise, uh, they place a very high value on, on sustaining the relationship and working together, cooperation. And, you know, to use the cliche, you know, when you get a lemon, make lemonade. And so, so you have to have two people. I mean, as far as I've seen, uh, you know, one person may be really good, but if the other person is just really not there, uh, you know, anyway. <laughs> If you want to know more on this topic, uh, I have a pay-per-view YouTube channel. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so anyway, I've thrown out some points. Maybe I would like to hear from all of you and um, like anything you want to ask about this. Yes, please. Oh, thank you, Ashari Dave, for being here tonight. Um, thank you for coming. Shorty's my old friend. I, I mean, I've known her since she was born. Really. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is a long, this is a long time. Um, but could you elaborate on each and like the internal conflict and like yes, the yes. mindset and like that, like when our duty, like just yeah, just more. Thank you. Th thank you for reminding me of that. Um, yes. Conflict, internal conflict is like salt or pepper. It's good in the right amount. And so because if you think about it, if you were literally absolutely satisfied with yourself the way you are, you would never want to improve. You'd never want to grow. If you play a musical instrument, you think, I play perfectly. <laughs> then, so and this gets back to the whole dialectic that let's say the status quo or the, or the thesis in the dialectic is just the way you are now on every level, spiritually, morally, artistically, socially, emotionally, everything, just, just the way you are. And I think an intelligent person, the person who's not just blinded by their own vanity, wants to improve, wants to be a better person. Because, you know, this is, it's not hard for any reasonable person to see that I could improve in many ways. And I would like to, because actually, uh, to quote Bhagavad Gita and Pride and Prejudice, um, happiness actually comes from virtue. Happiness comes from virtue, from your own goodness. So if, if, if I'm not a good person, nothing on earth can make me happy. And that's why my relationships won't last, because I'm thinking foolishly that even though I'm not a virtuous person, someone else is going to make me happy, which is absurd. 
I can only make myself happy by being a good person. And therefore, the more, the better I become, the more virtuous I become, the happier I'll be. And therefore, real life, human life is meant to cultivate that virtue because that's actually the source of happiness. That's actually the source of happiness. And there, there are these powerful verses in the Bhagavad Gita, 6, 5, and 6, which um, are what I call the most existential verses of the Bhagavad Gita. Because just very briefly, have you ever heard of existentialism? It was a philosophy that people used to have heard of back in the 60s. You know, people like Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, yeah. Kierkegaard, actually, Nietzsche, who really needed help. But anyway, <laughs> so the idea, I'll, I'll just tell you the story of Jean-Paul Sartre, this famous author. And, and this really tells you what existentialism is. Um, Sartre was a young man during the Nazi occupation of France. He was in Paris. And um, what really disturbed him is that some French people, some of his country people, country persons, men and women, seemed to be cooperating with the Nazis more than the absolute minimum, just so you don't get yourself shot or your family shot. I mean, to some extent you had to cooperate, if, you know, because getting shot can ruin your whole day. So, but he saw, yeah. So he saw people actually abandoning their individual moral responsibility. And he traced this to what he considered to be a very dangerous trend in Western civilization, which is psychological determinism. And this came, I'll explain what that is. Uh, in this course was a reaction to, to Freud. Because in this rage to find the science of everything, the nature of sciences are a hard science like physics or anything is deterministic. That means, let's say, for example, if I, well, I won't drop your cell phone. But let's say, <laughs> let's say if I, if I take this cup of water and I, we'll say I drink it. I don't pour it on the floor. As I drink it, then, then according to the laws of physics, the water is going to go at a certain speed into my mouth, depending on the angle that the glass is tilted, the pressure based on how much water there is and so on. And, and so this can be precisely calculated. And the water and the, and the glass, they have no choice. They can't say like, hey, give me a break. You know, I, I, I'm, a, you know, I, I'm, I'm not on right now, I'm not working now. Go get another glass of water. So the glass of water, because it's just a, so to speak, dead matter, it has to behave a certain way. If I tilt it a certain way, the water has to run at a certain angle and it has to run at a certain speed and for everything. So when you can, when things have to behave in a certain way, there's no free will. Like if someone pushes me and I fall forward, you could exactly calculate the rate, the speed that I'm falling, the impact on my body and so on, because I have no control over it. When you have free will, you don't get a hard science. Obviously, I can't predict exactly what you'll do or say, unless you're just like ridiculously predictable. But a normal person, a normal person, you can't always predict because they have free will. But with, with Freud, you see what Freud was trying to do in a sense, and this is what Sartre and many others thought, this is like really dangerous. He wanted a hard science of the human mind. In other words, if we can really have a hard science of psychology, not the soft science we really have. What that means is 
that you don't have free will. You have to act in a certain way. And you see this trickle down psychological determinism, you know, in your own life. When, let, let, let's say someone speaks inappropriately to you. You know, they speak in a way they shouldn't have spoken to you. And then they excuse themselves by saying, you don't know what happened to me. You don't know what I've been through. In other words, based on what happened to me, I get a pass. I'm no longer morally responsible for the way I'm treating you. Because based on the way I grew up and based on the way I was treated, I have no choice. I have to act a certain way as much as if I roll a ball, the ball has to roll at a certain speed because of the laws of nature. And so this psychological determinism where people imagine, of course, there is no such thing. But, 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 but this is the idea that uh, if we understood the human mind well enough, we could predict human behavior and emotions as much as now we can predict the speed at which a ball will roll down a hill. And of course, the obvious problem with this is that you're not morally responsible. You can go out in the street and shoot somebody and say, well, it's just because when I was a kid, blah, 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 and this happened and that happened. And so just one little word of advice from someone who's maybe roughly, you know, an average of 11 years older than the people in this room, that, um, yeah, <laughs> beware of relationships with people that believe in this because they don't take moral responsibility for what they do. And that's how, and so Sartre thought Nazis, I mean, the French, in Nazi-occupied France are not taking moral responsibility for their actions because of this. And so the, the whole thrust of existentialism, where it's Kierkegaard or Nietzsche with his Ubermensch or, or whether it's Sartre or other people, is that you are responsible. You have to take responsibility for your life. You can't just abdicate your responsibility by talking about your childhood or talking about a bad relationship you had we're talking about this, you're responsible, period. And that's very empowering. That's how you take power back in your life. You admit that you're responsible for what you do. And so, and so the verses in Bhagavad Gita where Krishna talks about this is, uh, actually, I have a Bhagavad Gita, I think, on my computer. And so for a slight additional fee, I am willing to... <clears throat> this is an add-on, by the way. It's... I'm sure no one here. Oh, uh, can't be open because it's from an unidentified developer. I, it didn't let me say yes. Do you have a Gita? I do. Okay, okay. Yours or? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, no, mine doesn't have Sanskrit. Okay. So, um, actually, I forgot. You can just go on Google now and just say Gita. Yeah. <laughs> I got Gita, I said Gita 5-6 and I got an advertisement for women's sheepskin boots. Okay. okay, here's the Gita verse. That's what the universe sent me, right? Oh, that's nice. I gotta, I gotta touch on that one. So I think there are, I mean, human folly is hilarious. It's like Elizabeth Bennett in Pride and Prejudice says that, well, well, Jane says that she's sort of a connoisseur of human folly. 
like when you say the universe did this or the universe did that, I always think like, what part of the universe? Do you mean like the plunger in your bathroom? <laughs> do you mean the third moon of Saturn? I mean, do you mean what? Because to have will, like, like to have will, like I do something, I consciously, intentionally do something, you have to be a person. So is it, if you take the whole universe, it's a person, then the obvious question is, which person is it? Because it's not me. I mean, I don't have any asteroids in my body or anything. So, so who is the person who is the universe? Because rocks and, and, and water and empty space, they don't have intention. They don't, they're not conscious. And so when you say the universe consciously did something or sent something or showed you something, it sounds nice, but, but under scrutiny, it turns out to be gibberish. But par for the course in this age. So anyway, in the Gita 6.5, Krishna says, Udharet Atmanat Manam, not Manam of us. You're going to hear the word Atma a lot. Krishna's doing this. And so in my translation, I, I kept the same, you know, for the, the word Atma. Do you have my book here? Yeah, can I? I'll give it back. <laughs> Comes with attachment book. So Atmaiva Hyatmano Bandur Atmaiva Ripuratmana. Little infomercial here. <laughs> My name is H.D. Goswami. And I'd like to talk to you. So um, So this is in chapter six. Uh, and so the word atma literally means self. It means self. It's even the it's even the reflexive pronoun. Like for example, if you wanted to say self-service in Sanskrit, you'd say atma seva. So it's even like the word self there, self-service, self-done, self-made person. That's the reflexive pronoun where the action comes back upon the person. So in Sanskrit, it's atma. So it means self. And so Krishna says here that. One should uplift self by self. One should not degrade self. Indeed, self alone is self's friend. Self alone is self's foe. And I'm going to, to use the modern trendy word, unpack this. <laughs> um, I never liked that. It always reminded me of suitcases. <laughs> and so then... Um, then 6-6 six, six is, Bandurat matmanas tasya jainat maiva atmana jita, anatmanas to shatutve vartet atmaiva shatutve. So again, the word atma is being used over and over again. So, and these, this translation is extremely literal. I did everything humanly possible to make it. So when you hear the English, that's what it sounds like in Sanskrit, if you're fluent in Sanskrit. Self is friend. Self is friend to that self by whom self alone is conquered. But that very self can work as enemy due to non-self's enmity. And so, no problem there. Mm -hmm. So I'll explain what all this means. Going back to the previous, because these are the existential verses of the Gita. And, and um, let's see, where is it uh, previous? So the first thing Krishna says here is that only you can literally uplift yourself. Udharet, one can uplift. That atmatmanasa, that only you can uplift yourself. And the self should not degrade the self. Don't degrade yourself. Lift yourself up. 
And then Krishna says that the self alone is self's friend. In other words, if, if a friend is someone that does good to you or for you, then ultimately, and this is not rejecting normal friendship, but ultimately in the highest sense, only you can be your true friend because someone else can help you, but only if you let them help you, only if you know how to take help. And, and so ultimately you have to be your own friend. You have to uplift yourself. Only you can degrade yourself. No one else can degrade you. And, and then Krishna says in the next verse, uh, and we'll get this back, take this back to conflict, that, um, yeah, that, that, so who is a friend to themselves? That's what Krishna says. Who, what person is actually being a true friend to themselves? And it's the, it's the self that controls themselves. That actually, literally, the word in Sanskrit, it's not literally controlled, it's jita, which is the past passive participle from jaya, which literally means conquered. What does it mean to conquer yourself? It means that you have all these powers, you have all this beauty, you have this pure spiritual nature, you have this divine nature, you have a nature which makes you very much like God. I mean, with a small g. But... We're part of Krishna. We actually have the same nature as Krishna. We have the same divine nature. We have, we have abilities, powers, beauty that we can't even imagine now. We can't even, we can't even understand it now. And yet, you can only access your own true nature, your, your glorious nature, if you don't run after something which is only going to degrade you. If, you if we take the body to be the self, we are degrading ourselves. And of course, the modern world is obsessed with the body, obsessed with the body. And so who, who we really are is literally millions of times greater than the body. I mean, I'm not body bashing or what's the word now? Body shaming. <laughs> like, you know, if, if you just even try to very gently suggest that people should be decent, you're body shaming them. So, but the idea is that um, it's like, let, let's say someone puts on a costume and thinks, someone thinks I'm King Arthur or I'm, you know, uh, or I'm Queen Elizabeth the first, actually, or I'm this or I'm that. And you try to gently tell them, can we talk about that? And, you know, I think actually your name is Jane or Billy. And so why are you shaming this person? It's like, you know, you're shaming them. Why are you, they have their own reality. First thing is we don't have our own reality. I mean, we do and we don't. We do have our own reality in the sense that each one of us is unique. And so what it's like to be you is something only you know perfectly, you and God. Because each one of us is unique. But in another sense, we don't have our own reality. There's been a war on objectivity. It's part of the postmodern cuckoo thing. For example, right now we're in Los Angeles. If you think we're in Detroit or on Jupiter or you're just wrong. It's not, well, no, man, that, that's his reality that we're on Jupiter right now. No, actually, we're on Earth. Or, or let's say you're driving your car, someone's, someone's not you, but someone's driving their car drunk and there's another car in front of you. You think, no, that's, I don't see a car. My reality is there's no car in front of me. Well, 
you'll probably, you know, die as a martyr of your reality. <laughs> so reality is a, is a balance between subjectivity and objectivity. The world's not just subjective and it's not only, you know, you have your own unique reality and you are part of the general objective reality. You know, you've got to stop at the same red lights. You've got to pay your taxes. You have to respect other people's space. I mean, there, there are millions of millions and millions of millions of objective facts about the world that we all agree on, such as the English language. And so do we have our own reality? Yes, within an objective universe. Everyone has their own way of being in an objective universe. And so conflict, again, but still, if there's a conflict, again, if you really respect the other person, if you understand that everyone is on their, in, in a sense, on their own path. I mean, we, everyone in this room can chant Hare Krishna, but everyone is having their own unique experience. Everyone is on their own path. Everyone has their own relationship with Krishna, with God. And so to be unique, and to have your own path, your own reality is not war against objectivity. It's just your own way of being in an objective universe. And final thing about conflict, about good conflict. And open up to some questions. Yeah, yeah, more questions. And, and there's this great line from a great novel of the 20th century called To Kill a Mockingbird. Anyone ever heard of that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, uh, Scout is, uh, what's the name of the, the author? She died recently. I can't, I can't believe I forgot her name. Yeah, Harper Lee, of course, Harper Lee. Yeah, so, uh, and, and actually, she grew up in town just like that. I mean, she, she really knew what she was talking about. And so, um, her father is kind of like, you know, the wise person in the story, Atticus Finch. And... Um, one day scout who must be how old is she 11 or something or 12 or something but anyway so one day she comes home she's complaining to her father because there's an older lady that lives across the street who's kind of eccentric and scout doesn't like her you know the way she is and then her father this classic southern wisdom her father says to her scout that's just her way i thought wow that really impressed me scout that's just her way and so ultimately, if we see that everyone is sort of doing their best, but whatever they're doing, um, and it, some people take a, a, you know longer to evolve to get there, and you just sort of accept people the way they are, and then you just have to decide is this is it compatible? You know, if someone comes to you and says, "I really want to change, help me, please, I beg you," yeah, maybe there's two kinds of people: people that want help and people that want attention. And so if someone is, is in the category of really wanting help and not just wanting perpetual attention, then uh, you can help them. But if someone, even as a, as, a, as a guru, Hare Krishna guru, if you want my card, just um, <laughs> I'll beat any confirmed offer, by the way. So, you know, even in, in the position that somehow Krishna placed me in, I don't really give unsolicited advice. I mean, I was, it's your fault I was asked to come here and speak. But, <laughs> but in my personal relationships, if someone doesn't ask me for help or advice, I really don't give it. I, you know, I just respect people's right to do what they want. 
So I think in a relationship, you have to allow the other person just to be themselves. You can't make them with, and, and then you've got to figure out whether it's a match or not. But with mutual respect. So any other questions? Yes, so questions. Yes. Hare Krishna. The thing with conflict, uh, so the term good conflict, conflict, positive positive conflict. Um, I was thinking more about her question in a conflict. Yes, in, yes. In the spiritual path. Uh, how do you, when in the Bhagavad Gita it says, when you part in the Seva and so you have to put a certain amount of faith in your guru uh, and not come to a point where you still feel you have an inner philosophical conflict. Uh, so my question is, at what point do you maintain that to for your spiritual progress to still have that doubt or conflict? Let's right. say, otherwise you're not growing spiritually. So right, to, right. Of, and at what point do you we surrender uh, to the instruction of the spiritual master. Very good question. Where, where yeah. does that fall? Yeah, it's an excellent question. Um, okay, first of all, uh, that would be, I think what you described, something like an intellectual conflict or philosophical conflict. And um, I would say there are two kinds. One kind of philosophical conflict uh, can be just one still has doubts about uh, the basic teachings of Krishna consciousness, and which in our tradition is called Siddhanta. Siddhanta means philosophical conclusion. So for example, if someone may be wondering, is it really true that I'm not the body, I'm an eternal soul? Or is it really true there's a God? Or is it really true there's a personal God? Or uh, is it really true that, uh, that I've had many past lives? So that would be a case where someone is just may have doubts about the basic, our basic philosophical framework. Now there's also another kind of philosophical doubt, or I wouldn't even call it philosophical. And that is that within that framework of, of basic principles of Siddhanta, there are different, uh, there are different outlooks among gurus. Gurus are different. For example, some of them are very conservative. Some of, some of them are very liberal. And to be perfectly honest, some of them know history and some of them don't. For example, uh, you know, real world. So, for example, one guru may say, oh, you don't need, you know, formal education, go to college. And some gurus may say, yes, please, please educate yourself. So, you know, in terms of the conflict or the doubt, it depends on what level it's on. Now, in the Nectar Devotion, Chapter 6, Rupa Goswami and Prabhupada make a very crucial distinction, which, unfortunately, to be very candid here, um, often is, is overlooked. And it's, 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 it's really a problem that is overlooked. And that is there are basic principles of spiritual life, of bhakti yoga, and there are details. And Prabhupada and Rupa Goswami both say very clearly that we have to agree on the basic principles, but the details may change. For example, how you should dress or, you know, whether you should get married to a particular person or your career or all kinds of things or just, you know, there's all kinds of things which are just details. They're not basic principles. 
And so to think these are like, like, let's say if I'm a guru and I'm really, really concerned with how my disciples dress, it's like, really? Maybe I should have become a fashion designer or something. But so. But Mara, does the conflict ever end? Do you come to a point where, because you feel that I'm a musician, you get the uh, yeah. analogy. Of, oh, really? What do you play? I'm a vocalist. I'm oh, really? I, I, I play keyboard. Oh, nice. And sometimes nice. we'll get together. Nice. So I can understand from a music standpoint that yeah. that analogy is fine, but you never think you know it all. So therefore, you're always growing. But in, in the spiritual sense, in the spiritual path, does that conflict ever end? Are you constantly just in conflict? You mean with the guru or with yourself? No, no, just, 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 just understanding that your relationship with the Supreme Lord and... Well, take your, take your life as a musician, for example. I'm sure like all serious musicians, you want to improve. You like, and like, for example, I play keyboard. I mean, not, you know, it's, it's okay. It's enough. It's like a serious, serious hobby. I can, you know, I play classical music mostly. But um, in the, if I listen to a concert pianist, I think, oh my God. Like, <laughs> and to me, they're just like magicians, you know, how they do this stuff. And so, um, so if I'm too obsessed with my own imperfections, then it spoils the music for me, you know? Because ultimately you play music because music is beautiful and because it's inspiring and it's therapeutic and it's all kinds of things and it's romantic. So, so if, if someone is just lackadaisical, there's like, there's like two extremes. I would say on any road, you can go off either side. So there's a balance where you're not too self-critical but you're not too self-indulgent. And that's really where you wanna be, where you don't discourage yourself by being too self-critical, but you don't become shameless and self-indulgent by just, you know, not really being honest with yourself and not being all that you could be and not developing your talent as much as you could. So it's that balance. And actually, if you think about it, either like, let's say as a musician, or as a practicing bhakti yogi, or as anything. I mean, when you know that I could do better and, and it's, it's a healthy, balanced enthusiasm, it's encouraging. I mean, like, like let's say, like someone says, I wanna be a great athlete, I'm going to the Olympics, or I really wanna master this particularly difficult piece of music, or, you know, I just wanna be a better person. I want to be a much better, a much better friend to my friends. I want to be much, a, a much better person in a particular relationship. And so when there's a healthy desire to improve, and that's the good or positive conflict, it's the conflict, inner conflict between what I am now and what I could be and what I'd like to be. When it's the healthy amount, when it's a balanced amount, it's not discouraging, it's encouraging. When I get up in the morning, it's like another day, I'm going to take another shot at it. You know, I'm going to do better today. And uh, it's, it, to me, that's, that's life. Life, because every time you become better, whether it's better at music, better at sports, better at whatever you do, life becomes better. You, like new possibilities open up. You know what I mean? It's like when you're playing music. Well, well you sing. And so uh, I know myself, you know, reading music, I play mostly Baroque, but I'm a huge Baroque fan, which is roughly 1600 to 1750. The principal figures are people like Bach, Handel, Vivaldi, and lots of other really great 
composers, but you know, like let's say there are pieces I've been playing for 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 several years, and, and then you find I finally get to the point where I'm not thinking about the technical part. I'm just really in the music. It's just like you know, I can, I can technical part I can do it. I don't have to think about it, and I can really go deeper and deeper into what the to what the music is really saying. And so it's it's, it's like and, and so yeah, there's a healthy amount and a healthy type of conflict which inspires you to be all you can be and again if, if there's not enough of that a person can become uh basically shameless and lazy and self-indulgent and if there's too much you just kind of destroy yourself you beat yourself down so it's that healthy amount that balance Anyone else have any questions? I'm getting there. <laughs> <laughs> it's still formulating it. Yeah. So, Marge, you're talking about conflict, and then my question is kind of going upon more on this internal conflict. Yes. That internal conflict can lead us to in a direction in our life to where we can improve and grow and expand not mm -hmm. only ourselves, but then the people around us. So conflict can actually be a process that can yeah, can can break up break break down a current situation a current uh state of being uh maybe a specific idea that we have and then perhaps maybe even improve it so a lot of times when we're approached with conflict the initial reaction for people can be either very like a, you can say an aggressive angry approach where they can feel like they're taking it personally or they can shut down and not actually open up and speak actually express or speak their heart what is the the, the balanced approach to being able to express yourself and at the same time not uh, overwhelm the person or yeah. shut down their expression first of all i think you have to be doing this with someone that wants to do it I mean, I can't, I can't force someone or pressure someone to go through that process. And so actually, if I get closer, maybe can, the light is better. So um, I think it's also a question of being mature enough to recognize with whom you should and should not attempt this. Because some people just, they just, you know, it's like you just, shake hands with them and it's like, ouch, what did, you know, don't, don't do that to me. It's so some people are just, you know, very sensitive or, or they're just at a stage in their life for whatever reason, they're just not going to go there. And so you have to find people like, let's say you have a relationship with someone and you see a lot of value in the relationship, but you'd like to improve it. You, you'd like to have a better relationship, but the other person says, you know, I'm not interested. I don't want to talk about those things or you know then of course obviously you have two choices either what you see is what you get do you want so is that good enough for you or if you think that i know that i'm capable of having a better relationship i you know i'd like to be with someone who really wants to work with me as a partner to to reach the you know certain levels of, of love or relationship which are only possible when people really are dedicated to the relationship and are willing to do that and so yeah, again, it's, it's compatibility. It's compatibility. Because when I was younger, 
I'm now going to attribute all faults to my the youthful version of myself. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you know, you're no Rattabha Goswami. Yeah. Yes. He's a great guy. Yeah. So he he always says, yeah, I only made one mistake in my life, one time. I thought I was wrong, but I wasn't. <laughs> I saw a T-shirt in San Luis Obispo that said, "I'm not perfect." but I'm so close, it's scary. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, when I was younger, I tried to change people and I realized at a certain point, ooh, it just, I mean, if people, some people want to change. Like some people, if if you see that someone says, yeah, I want to go on that journey. I'd like to either learn what you're saying or I'd like to, we can learn from each other or let's develop a friendship and let's work. So it's a question of finding people that just have the same project as you. It's like if you're trying to build a bridge and someone else wants to develop their stamp collection, it's, <laughs> it's going to be hard to partner with them on those <laughs> projects. <laughs> so it's a question of just, you know, <laughs> Oh my God. It's, it's a question of, you know, being with people that just, you know, where there's, there's a sufficient compatibility so you can do those things together. And so you don't frustrate yourself or frustrate other people or just, you know, sort of set yourself up for big disappointments when, you know, in retrospect, that couldn't work. So why was I, what was I doing? Of course, you don't want to be, you want to give it a chance. You want to give it the old college try and all that. But, you know, there's a kind of wisdom. Actually, where does that come from? Uh, Krishna says, actually, in the Bhagavad Gita, when, when our, I think it's third chapter, when Arjuna asked Krishna, what is a symptom of someone that has real wisdom? And one of the symptoms is they know when to stay and they know when to go. That's actually one of the things that Krishna says. Yeah, one of the symptoms of, of wisdom is that you know when to stay and you know when to go. That's in the Gita, actually. Can I ask a question about that? No. <laughs> Come on, you can do it. My old <laughs> friend, Sorgi. So then, when to go, like when there's too much conflict or when you're constantly trying to improve yourself and maybe creating mm-hmm. conflict right. or, or conflict is then... Oh, I know. Like, like yeah. or, or even if it's just internal, but it's like, how do you know then when you are overextending yourself and that... Mm-hmm. And that maybe this is not the right moment in order to make that change, whether t- it's yeah. internally or with other people. But like, I'm t- know when to stop. I'm tempted to say, do what I did, live long enough and suffer enough that you finally figure it out. But you've <laughs> 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 kind of you've made every possible mistake, and then what's left is what you should be doing. <laughs> That's, I remember, I remember one time when I was just I was a little kid, and I remember my father. One day he said, yeah, I went to the school of hard knocks. And so um, I would say also being open to good advice. And not all advice is good, of course. But um, it's really, I mean, if it's any consolation, uh, I find it's wonderful, like getting older in life. I mean, not the soul, but the body, because it's just... 
if someone, you know, is reasonably sincere and just tries to practice bhakti yoga, then, um, yeah, the peace, the tranquility, and, and kind of like the insight that comes with age, it's, um, it's just so sweet. It's just so nice. And so I, um, in the meantime, if you don't, <laughs> you don't have the good fortune of being old and decrepit, <laughs> then plan B is, um, yeah, I would say pray a lot to Krishna, you know, really be, if we can just understand our own limitations, if we can just understand that we're little souls and there's a lot in heaven and earth that we don't understand at this point, then, uh, and, and be cautious. Not, you know, I mean, obviously you can be too cautious and you can miss great opportunities. But uh, I think just being, I think it has to do with valuing yourself. Because I think if you take yourself seriously as, as an eternal soul, as part of God, and really take yourself seriously as a divine soul, then you'll be very careful with yourself. It's like, you know, you see, I mean, in the neighborhood I live, you see mothers and, you know, with their strollers and the babies and, and you just see, you know, how much they love their children and how much care they take. And, and um, so you, you do have to love yourself, which is not vanity. That's another interesting point, right? I think this is related to self-conflict is that the difference between self-love and just vanity and, and egotism. And so and I think the difference is that when you understand that somehow Krishna, by Krishna's mercy, I am an eternal soul. And that is just the best possible thing to be. And, and, I, and, and to feel just unlimited gratitude for what you are. I mean, you can think highly of yourself. You should think highly of yourself because you are divine. But give the credit to Krishna in the sense of, that somehow Krishna has manifested me as this infinitely valuable, eternal, divine being. And so the more you see what you really are, the more grateful you feel. Because when you see, when you see something great in yourself, it's like the fork in the road. There's the high road and the low road. The high road is gratitude. The low road is vanity. So we should see what we are as divine beings, but we should take the high road and feel grateful that somehow Krishna has, has, is allowing me to be the spiritual being. And the more you love yourself in that way, because if you see yourself through God's eyes, you will love yourself. You know, the real way to have self-esteem is not just this mindless vanity of the modern age, where everyone is great and everyone is wonderful, even if they're the opposite, you know, just materially. But if you see yourself through God's eyes, because Krishna loves us, God loves us, and not blindly. I mean, that's interesting. God does not love us blindly. It's not just some sort of blind parental attachment. Krishna loves us because he sees what we really are. And in a sense, in a relationship, when we decide to stay in a relationship, of course, sannyasis know all about this, but <laughs> actually, you'd be surprised. But when we decide to stay in a relationship, it's because we see the beauty of the other person, 
we see in a sense, because when you're seeing the real beauty of another person, the real goodness of another person, even if they're not always behaving properly, you're actually seeing their soul. That goodness, that beauty in another person is actually the soul. And so when you see that and, and you believe that there's so much value in this, there's so much good in this, that even if the person is not having their best day, uh, but I know who this person really is. And that's what parents do with children, right? Every day, every moment. That That's what, you know, the parents are seeing that this child is really this beautiful soul. So it's, um, but you can love, you should love yourself by seeing yourself as Krishna sees you. But it should inspire gratitude, not vanity. Crickets, anyone else have a question? <laughs> Did you find that brush? Derailed. Derailed. <laughs> <laughs> It's only a few more minutes on the scoreboard clock. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Unless we go on I, to I OT, question, right? Actually. Well, <laughs> yeah. I, I got a question. It's probably a, a little bit of a controversial question, but still going to ask a question. So what internal conflict within you led you to move in the direction of creating Christian West? Whoa. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, lock the doors. We're going to be here all night. <laughs> um, To be very honest, uh, Krishna, of course, naturally, in my own uniquely humble way, I'm going to attribute everything I did to Krishna. Maybe before you go, yes, um, I should let everyone know what Krishna West is. Oh, yes, of course. Um, maybe you want to give us sure. Hi, <laughs> I'm Ashley Goswami, and I can. Krishna West is a project. I said a movement within the movement, but some people got really unhappy with that expression. So we can call it a project within the Hare Krishna movement to um, make the powerful wisdom of Krishna consciousness and the power, spiritual, powerful spiritual practice available to people in the West without making them, to be very blunt, jump through ethnic hoops. In other words, you don't have to adopt another ethnic tradition. Uh, you know, let's say in this case of India, there's nothing wrong with India. It's just that I'm not, I, was born, I wasn't born in India. And, and you can say, well, we're not this body. But actually, it's very interesting. Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that in your human needs, he talks about this, in terms of your human needs, you should be balanced. You can't just say, well, I'm not my body, so I'm not going to eat. No, Krishna says, if you eat too much, which all of us have kind of mastered, but, <laughs> right? Usually most new devotees master that within the first 24 hours of joining the Hare Krishna movement. And they learn that, you know, eating moderately and healthily is, is actually maya. So anyway, so Krishna says, if you eat too much or if you eat too little, you can't practice spiritual life. If you sleep too much or if you sleep too little. And then Krishna says, by extension, by analogy, in all your human needs. And so one of the human needs we have, people have, is to be accepted within society. I mean, some people like to be rebels 
and to stand outside society and to be very freaky and everything. Some people, that's just, you know, what makes it all work for them. And everyone has a right to do it, you know? I mean, it's not my business to tell somebody else how to live their life. But it's a fact that for the overwhelming majority of people, they do not want to be perceived as freaks in society. They want to be, it's not that we, you know, crave respect, but which one, I mean, personally, just, this is just me, maybe it's because I'm a second child or something, but whatever <laughs> it is, I mean, personally, I, I, I got to a certain point in my life where I want to, I want to have the freedom to walk out the door of my house, walk down the street without having everybody staring at me. It's like, I'm done with everybody staring at me. I'm done with it. And of course, if I had a nickel for every obscene gesture I got, I could treat you all to, I don't know, maybe one day's rent in a nice neighborhood in Los Angeles. So <laughs> I just, I was just done with it. I just, you know, and, and because I think, it, I don't think it's just because I'm chicken or something. I think it's because there are certain basic human needs. And, and, and I mean, I, I think there's a lot of social science behind it. Some people are happy with it and, and that's, I'm, I'm happy for them. There's nothing wrong with people are happy having everyone stare at them every time they walk out the door. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. It's just not me. And frankly, it's not most people. I don't want that kind of attention. The kind of attention I want actually goes back before I joined the Hare Krishna movement. I, in 1969, when I was home in LA for the summer from Berkeley and uh, I ran into the Hari Nam party on Sunset Strip where they were chanting and I knew the devotees from Berkeley and you know I didn't know who they were then but it was like Vishnu Jhana and Tamal Krishna and all these boys and they were doing that you know they were kind of there was kind of like the Vedic Rockettes you know the you know the, <laughs> the Hari Krishna chorus line and um, so I I stopped to chant with them and, and there was a crowd watching them on sunset. And I remember thinking, this is 69 in the summer. And I remember thinking, should I go and stand in the line and chant or stay here? And then in, the answer I got from within was, no, I'm going to stay here. Because if normal people see that a normal person is chanting, that will do more to encourage them to also chant. And so that intuition, because the first rule of psychology is people like to be with people who are like them. You know, everyone has a taste for the exotic, like people take trips, they go to China, they go to Polynesia, they go to South America, they go to Africa, but they come home. They come home. You know, 99.9% .9 of Americans are not expatriates. They have not decided to live in another country, despite all the uh, bizarre things going on in this country. 99.9% .9 of the, or, or more of people, percent of people in this country are not expatriates. And so I thought, you know, the 60s, you have to understand something else. Prabhupada never saw the Western world under normal circumstances. Any historian, any historian, of America will tell you that almost precisely the 10 years that Prabhupada was active in this country, which are 66 to 76. 1965, he was in Butler, Pennsylvania. And you know, after it didn't take long, he realized, oh my God, I'm in Butler, Pennsylvania. And so, you know, he realized the great 
invaded glorious revolution is not going to start in Butler, Pennsylvania. So he went to New York. And so he actually started his mission in 66. And 1976 was the last time he actually came to, to America or the West. He, he went just briefly in 77 to London, trying to come back to America. He had little operations, health wasn't good, and he had to go back to India. But So Prabhupada preached in the West for 10 years. Those 10 years were completely anomalous. They were completely anomalous. Krishna opened this window. During those 10 years, one of the biggest fads in the world was Indian mysticism. The Beatles went to Rishikesh. You know, Jimi Hendrix had a picture of Vishnu with his own face, unfortunately. You know, on a cover, Jimi Hendrix had, you know, the universal form on his album. Everyone had a guru. Everyone, everyone who was anyone had a guru. There was one guru, I won't mention his name. Anyway. But he actually filled up the Astrodome. That's a football stadium, for God's sake. An Indian guru could fill up a football stadium. Personally, I would say that the overwhelming majority of Americans today cannot name one living guru. I used to sell books in universities. You know, I was a young guy. I'd go there and... Uh, Anyway, sell books, people. And so I remember you'd go to those bulletin boards. They have all the like activities announcements, you know, all the programs going on on campus. And, you know, half the, half the board was, was gurus, Indian gurus. They were rock stars. That ended. It is so over. The only time, frankly, in the last several years, gurus get, you know, in the headlines now, is because some Indian guru is convicted of rape and, and is going to jail. Really? I mean, I mean that's probably the only, almost the only time a, a, a guru, Indian guru becomes a news item nowadays. So it's gone back to normal. People no longer want to, like back then, freaky was good. Everybody, you know, all the young people wanted to be freaky. If you weren't freaky, you were freaky. You know, <laughs> I remember, for example, I was, I was in, you know, I was a student in Berkeley. I was actually right in the middle of all these demonstrations. My brother and myself uh, were on the cover of the Oakland Tribune in the middle of some student riot. Actually, I have it on my computer a little. He sent me a digital copy of it. So, I, I mean, I, I, I was in, I was on Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley one time. There was a big demonstration and I, I wasn't a devotee. And I'd been in so many, I just knew, you know, the, the cops came, like these big monster cops with all these weapons. And I just knew, hey, it's tear gas time. And I wasn't in the mood to be tear gassed at that point. So what I did is I just turned down a side street because I just, you know, somehow I didn't want to be tear gassed. And so, and I turned down the street and, you know, the canisters went off and the tear gas came out. And so I ran into a Harinam party. The Harinam party is Makunla, who's now a but it's, so there were like maybe like 10 or 11 young people following him, like the Pied Piper. And not one of those 11 people was dressed in the same century. I mean, there were Elizabethan clothes and Victorian clothes and, you know, pirates and, you know, Far Eastern clothes. I mean, no one was even in the same part of the world of the same century. So freaky was that. That's the way the world was. And I, I don't think two of them were singing the same song. I think he was the only one chanting, right, Krishna? But 
I won't go into all the social, socio, psychological, historical reasons why the world has changed. That's another discussion. There are reasons. So nowadays, I think we have to allow people to be devotees, chant Hare Krishna, go back to Krishna without imposing on them something which has nothing to do with the basic principles of Krishna consciousness, just a foreign ethnicity. And this comes from Prabhupada. I've written papers. I can send them to you. I have dozens of quotes from Prabhupada saying exactly the same thing. So that's Krishna West. The idea that archaic Indian clothes, which frankly, you know, half the stuff that are called Vedic, it is called like music styles, uh, cuisine, architecture, dress style. First of all, half of it comes from the Muslim world, which is not, you know, nothing wrong with that, but that's just where it comes from. You know, half the foods we offer to Krishna in the temples, because those are the foods Krishna likes, come from Turkey. Because when you read Chaitanya Charitamrita, and it talks about the Patan soldiers that Lord Chaitanya kept running into, they came from Turkey. So the Muslims, just take give one example of music. Indian classical music has been dominated for the last at least five or 600 years by Muslims. And yet devotees think it's Vedic. And there are reasons for that in terms of, you know, patronage and just the way music was subsidized in pre-industrial society. So there's all these things that we're, my point is, why don't we just give people a spiritual science and not mythology and not like this is Vedic, that's Vedic, that's the other thing is Vedic. And we always use this term Vedic culture. The funny thing about the term Vedic culture, it's not in the Vedas. There is no Sanskrit term which literally translated means Vedic culture. I mean, I don't, I don't want to you know, go on and on, but if you look at how the word Vedic, and, and the word Vedic is in Sanskrit, Vedic. In fact, in English, we make an adjective out of a noun, Veda, Vedic, that comes from Sanskrit, where you add a K at the end of a noun and make it into an adjective. That actually is Sanskrit. And so the word for Vedic in Sanskrit is Vaidika. And it's used in a complete different way in our literatures, which is another discussion. But so what I'm saying is the idea that, that there is an eternal, absolute dress style, an eternal, absolute, there are eternal, absolute recipes. There are eternal, absolute forms of music and architecture. Maybe there are, but there's no mention of that in any scripture. There's no scripture. There's no Vaishnav scripture that says that there is such a thing. And historically, it's all very different because India is a big place. And people that lived in jungles didn't dress the same way as people that lived way up in the mountains with the snow. And they didn't dress the same way as people that lived on the ocean or people that lived in the desert. They didn't dress the same way. They didn't cook the same food. They didn't make the same kind of music, but they were all Vaishnavas. And so I believe one of the biggest problems that, that is, is basically um, making it very, very difficult for this movement to be successful the way Prabhupada wanted is uh, this idea that somehow everyone has to be, undergo this extreme ethnic makeover, that, that somehow that's what God wants of you. God will love you more if you adopt a different ethnic tradition. What Krishna really teaches in the Bhagavad Gita is the mode of goodness. 
eat food and goodness. So it's so funny. So, so for some, you know, very conservative devotees, if you eat Western food that's completely in the mode of goodness, that's not what Krishna wants. If you eat Indian food that's completely in the mode of passion, Krishna likes that because it's Indian. So Krishna also is a, a chauvinist. <laughs> yes. I think a lot of, a lot of that comes from because, you know, they take the Bhugarthi, the song. Yeah, but that's, right, right. That's why they, they but if you look at the books, rice, right, my right. So a lot of people is always yeah. glorifying street fries and sugar. And well, to each his own. I mean, it's <laughs> it's kind of like the fast track to diabetes. But you know, it's it's a delicious preparation. But 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 Bhakti and Thakur. But that's where the argument. No, no, no. It's true. It's true. But here's the point. Krishna, according to our philosophy, Krishna appears in three dimensions, which I will explain. First of all, he he's in the spiritual world. Krishna right now is in the spiritual world. Secondly, Krishna appears in human history on this earth, and he also appears in the history of other planets and other universes. So we could just say Krishna appears in the history of conditioned souls. He enters into historical, historical context. Krishna appeared 5,000 years ago, Lord Chaitanya appeared 500 years ago. There's a third way that Krishna appears. That is, he appears in the minds and hearts of pure devotees. So when Bhakti Thakur sings that song, yes, Krishna really is eating that stuff. Or that's not stuff, it's divine food. But but Krishna, but that doesn't mean that's what Krishna ate 5,000 years ago. And it doesn't even mean that's what Krishna is, is eating in the spiritual world. Or he may. Because Prabhupada said variety is a mother of enjoyment. So there's infinite variety in the spiritual world. I mean, in this world, let's say you talk about the mode of goodness. How can a woman dress? I mean, just in the mode of goodness, I mean, it, it's unlimited. There are unlimited ways that you can dress a man or a woman and still be decent. It's, it's unlimited. So do we think that, you know, when you finally get to the spiritual world, varieties of mother of enjoyment, spiritual world, Krishna is there, who's infinitely creative. And you have unlimited souls, each one of which is inconceivably creative. With all that infinite creativity, every day go to the closet, well, I guess I'll wear my dhoti again today because that's all that's in my closet. I mean, really? And you have a world where people are infinitely creative and there's one kind of dress, there's one kind of, I don't think so. For example, the choli, this uh, somewhat unfortunate cultural importation, Many, many centuries ago in southeastern India, basically what is now Tamil Nadu, there was a, a powerful dynasty called the Chola dynasty. And they had a certain style of blouse, which became the Choli. So, I mean, what is really, I mean, for example, if you look at Indian art or even ISKCON art, Srivas and the Panchatat was always young. He's not. He's actually much older than Lord Chaitanya. So here you have all the, this Indian art and ISKCON art, which is ahistorical. Or for example, Narada Muni, are you aware that according to the Bhagavatam, 10th Canto, chapter 70, Narada Muni is blonde. Narada Muni is blonde. And, and another, it's not that, this is not, I'm not getting into like Aryan racism or anything, but <laughs> I, I'm, the point I'm trying to make is 
Another blonde, by the way, according to the Rig Veda, according to the Rig Veda, another person who's like really blonde, Lord Indra. And some people have dark hair, and some people are light skinned, and some people are dark skinned in, in the Mahabharata. So the point is, it's not India. It's, as Prabhupada says in several purports in the fourth canto, it's Indo-European civilization. For example, one person who is very light-skinned is Yudhisthira Maharaj. And some of his brothers were darker. So it's, it was, it's Indo-European civilization. So what I'm trying to do is, let me put it this way. Every new religious movement in recorded history that I know about, and I've studied this a long time, that became successful, that became a world religion, did what I'm trying to get ISKCON to do. And that is, it adapted to the world it was in. Didn't change its basic principles, but it adapted. One thing I noticed is Indians don't even wear gardens anymore. No, no, just, it's Hare Krishna, yeah. So it's not even an Indian thing. Anyway, uh, so Krishna West just means people, you can become a devotee, you can go all the way back to God, go back to Krishna, and you never have to become ethnically Indian. It's, 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 it's very simple. And we should, and, and uh, okay, I could, anyway, I've got all kinds of talking points. <laughs> yeah, sure. That, um, was, I mean, is this in line with Prabhupada's teachings? Yeah, yeah, I can send you a paper if you give me your email. Sure. I have pages and pages and pages of quotes from Prabhupada. That's another very important topic, by the way, the filtering of Prabhupada. And that is that, it's not that there's just this one-to-one -one transmission, like Prabhupada said this and we repeat it. In some cases we do, in some cases we don't. It's very interesting, you could do a very interesting study to see which statements from Prabhupada became very popular in ISKCON and everyone knows them and which statements didn't. So you have cases where there are things where it's not even, we can hardly document that Prabhupada ever said it and yet, uh, everyone in ISKCON says it, like the movement will go on for 10,000 years or, or, or different things. like. And yet there are other things that Prabhupada said constantly that no one remembers that he said it. Like for the fact, like, for example, it doesn't matter how you dress. Prabhupada said it many times. I've documented it. These are Prabhupada quotes from his Veda base. He said it to me personally in Honolulu. He said it to me personally. Sometimes, you know, he said one. So Prabhupada said many, many things that have been forgotten. And when you go back and you excavate all these Prabhupada statements, you get a very different picture. This picture of Prabhupada as this like really strong conservative who, you know, you, know, you can eat meat if you have to, but don't wear pants. It's, um, that's a joke. It's, um, my point is we should have the real Prabhupada in the center, the complete Prabhupada in the center of ISKCON. So I am trying to bring back into ISKCON many statements that come from Prabhupada, things that he said over and over and over again, and that everybody forgot. Because what you find is, just to give you the conclusion, the statements that, 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 that tended to become popular are the ones where, for example, Prabhupada's bashing the West, like, for example, the fact that universities, say, are slaughterhouses. That became popular. 
the fact that Prabhupada said uh, that if his devotees went to college and got PhDs so they could teach Krishna consciousness, that would save America and save the world. That the world, that America would be saved if his devotees got PhDs and taught in universities. That would save America. That didn't catch on. That didn't become a popular Prabhupada quote. But if Prabhupada once said the universities are like slaughterhouses, that's the battle cry. It's hard to get a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's actually, yes, well, it's nowadays, but, but there's, there's actually another reason, which has to do with psychology. And that is, in the early days of the movement, first of all, America was divided. They, say, don't trust. they said, don't trust anyone over 30. It was this big generation gap. So when we joined the movement, and we went out on the street dressed very exotically, and people were really shocked. And because there was already this animosity in the country because of the hippies and because of the radical political movements, the country was really divided. Bless you. And there was tremendous animosity between, basically, kids and their parents. And so when we went out on the street, we were young and we were exotic and we were rejecting everything our parents taught us. We got lumped in. And so there was tremendous animosity toward us. Tremendous. When you went on Hari Nam back in those days, you'd get like multiple, what I call uh, the uh, Pakshi Mudra, which in Sanskrit means the hand sign of the bird. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, we have people attacking us, people, you know, people would physically attack us. And so psychologically, when you live in a society, when you live in a society and that society rejects you, humiliates you, certain things happen psychologically that you can't control. There's a whole field of psychology, which is the psychology of oppressed peoples. If you study people, whether it's racial, whether it's ethnic, whether it's because you have the wrong religion, whether it's your Hare Krishna, whatever it may be, when you live in a society and you perceive that the greater society or the society in general looks down upon you or ridicules you, uh, the human mind psychologically reacts in certain ways. In a sense, you either sort of surrender to that humiliation and just kind of give up your self-esteem or what you do is you put down the oppressor you put down the people who are humiliating you who are who are you know keeping you down and you develop a whole negative outlook about them and so in the Hare Krishna movement because the people you know really look down on us and really the devotees develop this counterattack frankly, for their own psychological health, you could say, or what they thought it would be, the Hare Krishna movement developed this flourishing industry of putting down the Western world. Talking about how degraded it was. And even in th and this became completely unhinged. Like, for example, I remember a time when, because the boys always say yes, and because it's Kali Yuga, there's more and more crime in America at a time when crime was falling at an unprecedented rate. The crime rates were actually going down every year, and yet every Sunday in Iskand temples, you'd hear people saying, there's more and more crime. 
because we needed the world. We needed psychologically that the world that rejected us be despicable. And, or for example, why, why do you have this, like, frankly, this, I want to say like mindless thing where at a Sunday feast lecture, they'll talk about the four regular principles. Exactly what I was it not to do. Mm-hmm. Prabhupada wrote me a letter when I first took sannyas and said, literally, kind of in his way, said, for the love of God, you know, he said, when you go to the university, because I was going to universities, and Prabhupada say, said, do not present Krishna consciousness as rules and regulations. Do not talk about rules. He said, it's not rules and regulations. It's sublime philosophy. So why? Because at least the person giving the Sunday lecture, like I follow the principles and you don't. So even though you may think I'm weird, I think you're weird. And it's very interesting because if you look at India, where people, you know, millions and millions of them literally worship the devotees and thought, wow, this is amazing. People from the Western world adopting our culture. So therefore, the the relationship between devotees and non-devotees in India was the opposite. It was exactly the opposite because they respect us and we respect them and everything Indian is better than everything Western. You know, where does this come from, this, this silliness? I'm not saying one is better or one is worse. I'm just saying this chauvinistic idea, which permeates, frankly, the Hare Krishna movement, that everything Indian is better than everything Western. Uh, it's because India loves us and the West, you know, laughed at us. And therefore, you see these different psychological reactions. So there's a huge amount of psychology operating here in these. And that's why Prabhupada's statements where he puts down the West, you know, they become the battle cries of ISKCON. And the thousands of Prabhupada's statements, thousands, not hundreds, where he praises the West. Really? Did Prabhupada say that? I didn't know Prabhupada said that. And so what you have is you have kind of like this bent, this, what's a nice way, this problematic psychology, which arose out of that time because of historical circumstances. And it has become sacralized. It's become sacred and shrined. Like that's what it means to be a devotee. That's how devotees think. And that's how we should think about the West. And so you have expressions like karmi clothes. Yeah. You can see the, the little fruits that are emanating from, you know, the fruit of it. I mean, yeah, it, 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 it gets very silly. And so my point is, you know, Prabhupada even said, Prabhupada gave advice to the devotees who went on to Sankirtan, where he said that when you're preaching to, when you're trying to sell a book to an important person, he said the way you convince an important person, you have to praise them. And Prabhupada even said, say to them, oh, Mr. So-and-so, you're such a big man. You know, Prabhupada way tell you, you're a very important man. Please take this book. So for better or for worse, America is a leading country still, for better or for worse. And the point is, when people are proud and on top and they know they're on top, you cannot simultaneously denigrate them and attract them. Unless, you know, some people have weird psychologies like, please hit me harder. But it's, <laughs> but if we can just kind of put aside the masochists out there. As far as normal people in this country, we cannot simultaneously denigrate them and attract them doesn't work. 
And the final thing I want to say, simple, ISKCON needs to remember its grammar school math. Because Prabhupada said, he used to say this in, in 66 in New York, that I came to your country, America. He said, and there's so many wonderful things here. There's so many beautiful things here. But without Krishna, they are zeros. But if you put the one of Krishna in front, it becomes a big number. Now, the zero, by the way, was invented in India. And it couldn't be modern technology. With I mean, imagine trying to write computer code with Roman numerals. I mean, really? Oh, by the way, what did the Romans say when he walked into a bar? You know, heaven this one? He said, hey, give me five. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> so... Yeah. I got it from my father. He told really corny jokes. Anyway, so... I mean, imagine you have imagine you have the number one thousand written in actually Indian numerals that came from the Arabs to the Rome. We call it Roman numerals. Actually, actually uh, comes from India. But imagine you have the number thousand. If you add a zero to the right, that zero has a value of nine thousand. That's what Prabhupada meant when he said it becomes a big number. There's because there's so many zeros. The next zero has a value of 90,000, the next zero is 900,000, 9 million, 90 million. That's what the zeros that Prabhupada was talking about. So there are so many great things in this country. There's so many, well, and there's also a lot of insanity, but there's so much that we could admire. Why don't we be, we have, to, you cannot stand radically outside this country and save it. You can't do that. So if you want to be radically outside of it in your cult, in, in all your, you know, ethnic choices, you can, you are not going to save this country. It's not going to happen. It's never happened in history and it's not happening now. Every time a new religious movement actually grew and became an important religion, in every case, it's because they adapted. There's no case where they didn't adapt and they were trying to pre Now, the only case where you may not have to adapt is when in sociological terms, you're coming from a prestige culture to a culture of less prestige. This is not a value judgment. It, it's purely mathematical. In other words, for example, how many people in the world go to see Hollywood movies and how many people see Bollywood movies? It's all Hollywood. This is not, a, it doesn't mean that Hollywood movies are better. It's not, it's not that kind of judgment. It's just numbers. This is just numbers. And so we can look at other numbers, like, for example, international tourist destinations. Where do people go when they have a choice of going to any country? In Asia, India is in last place in terms of foreign tourism, by the way. And so, and so we can actually, it, again, it doesn't mean there's something wrong with India. I'm just saying that they even have this study they do. It's a social science study, which they call national brands. In other words, when you hear of a country, Germany, Japan, uh, Australia, you know, Tahiti, Brazil, Nigeria, when you hear of a country, what do you think of? Like, do you admire the country? Is it a place like, I wouldn't want to go there, like, you know, North Korea? That's not on my list. That's not on my bucket list for, you know. So, 
And so when a country has more status, more prestige, it's not a value judgment. It's just the numbers. What do people think? And so at the present time, the most prestigious part of the world is the West. That's where almost all of what is called the soft power comes from. You know this term, soft power. It means hard power means basically guns, tanks, you know, fighter jets, bombs. That's hard power in social science terms. Soft power, for example, Hollywood, the Beatles. Suddenly, you know, England became a fad. Why? The Beatles, the Rolling Stones. No guns, no tanks, soft power. Music, movies, literature, you know, Harry Potter, soft power. Or, for example, Mahatma Gandhi was soft power. You know, he inspired Martin Luther King. So in terms of soft power at the present time, it's almost all in the West. Russia, for example, has sort of been resurgent militarily with Putin. That's a whole other story. But in terms of soft power, it's, it's somewhere around zero. Russia's soft power is somewhere around zero. And so um, the idea of coming into a country like America, which has a tremendous amount of soft power, has tremendous status. Again, no value judgment, you know, for good or for evil. It has a lot of status. And trying and coming from a culture which, again, whether it's fair or unfair, not my point here, has very low status culturally, India and thinking that you're going to culturally colonize a country of higher status. Culture is like water. It flows down. It doesn't flow up. If you're waiting, if you're wondering why there's no water in your bathroom and the pipe is going, you know, in the wrong direction, <laughs> culture doesn't flow up. It flows down. And so in purely mechanical, mathematical, non-judgmental terms, there is not even a snowball's chance in hell that the Hare Krishna movement is going to culturally colonize the Western world. It's not going to happen. So don't hold your breath because you'll die long before it happens. <laughs> and it's not happening. It's not happening. And it's not going to happen. And therefore, uh, we need to be part of this country. If, if you live in this country and you want to save this country and not just go to some Sunday program and hang out with your friends, if you actually want to save this country, then uh, we need to be part of it. Not, it doesn't mean we eat meat. It doesn't mean we become agnostic. It doesn't mean anything like that. It means that within our own principles, within our own boundaries, we are part of the country and we fit in, and people ask the right questions. When I go out and hurry up, I don't want people saying, why you dress like that? For two reasons. Number one, it's a superficial question. As Prabhupada said, what, why the hell are they asking that? And number two, there's no good answer. <laughs> there's actually not a good answer. We don't know that. Uh, okay, okay, okay. Let, let's look at that. Thank you for bringing that up. First of all, the word dhoti is not a Sanskrit word and appears in no scripture. 
whatever you want to label it as that uh well we have no evidence of that you see i take seriously the fact with the Prabhupada, what Prabhupada always said that the difference between our movement and many other movements at the time when we were the only Gaudiya Vaishnava movement in the West, he said the difference is that we are based in Shastra. We have the Shastric authority. I take that seriously. So there is no mention anywhere. For example, we know that the gopis did not wear saris in the modern sense. We know that. And the reason is because many places in the Bhagavatam it mentions the gopis wore belts. And today, when people wear saris in the normal way today, women, they don't wear belts. We also know that women had a top cloth and a lower cloth. Whereas the sari is sort of like one cloth, which because India is a tropical country in many parts of India, women would wear with no undergarments. I've seen that myself. I, mean, I wasn't happy to see it, but I did see it. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, definitely it would only be the lower self that was happy to see it. But, it's, but it was, I mean, I saw it in, in Mayapur. I saw it in Mayapur. These were, you know, simple women. They were doing agricultural work. And, and you know, because of the, the work they were doing, it was, they're basically topless. And so, because they were just wearing a sari. And we know that back, you know, way back in the day. And, and so, uh, we just don't have evidence of that. As far as you said, the six Goswamis. Okay, let, let's look at that. First of all, we have, we have proof. We have proof that the six Goswamis did not wear dhotis. You know, one time when I went to say goodbye to Prabhupada and Vrindavan when the festival was ending, and so that, yeah, I'm, I'm going to explain that. I'm going to explain the proof. First of all, I, I, I'm, I'm very careful in how I make my points because, you know, I, I want to get this right. I, and, and, you know, out of respect for your intelligence, I'm, I'm giving you a solid point. One time I went to say goodbye to Prabhupada and Vrindavan I was going back to the West, and he just said to me that, do you know that song, The Six Goswamis, Bande Rupa Sanatan? I said, yes. He said, he said, they were the ideal sannyasis. They were actually the first Vaishnav sannyasis. I mean, the revival of Vaishnav sannyas. Because uh, before that, even Lord Chaitanya took sannyas from a, an impersonal sampradaya because that was the only accredited sannyas degree at the time. And so the Six Goswamis really inaugurated Gaudiya Vaishnav sannyas. And Prabhupada said, if you study that song, Bande Rupa Sanatano, you will understand what is ideal sannyas. And in that song, it said about the six Goswamis, kopina kantasrito. They wore kopin and rags. And if you look at the cover art of the BBT edition of the Chaitanya Charitamrita, you will find that Lord Chaitanya did not wear a dhoti. He wore just you know, a little thing. And so the point is that Prabhupada Prabhupada consciously rejected the sannyas dress as his own guru did, Bhakti did, that was worn by the six Goswamis in Lord Chaitanya. Why? Because it wasn't appropriate. And because it's not something that you, that you have to follow. <clears throat> For example, one time I was walking with Prabhupada, we were just the two of us on the roof in Mayapur, the original Lotus building, and Prabhupada was just talking to me about the latest stupid criticism being made of him by some people in India. And some people criticizing him because Lord Chaitanya walked around the country, but Prabhupada was flying on commercial jets. 
And I remember Prabhupada, you know, stopped and said to me, should I be a fool and walk or should I be intelligent and fly on the jet so I can actually preach? So if you want to dress like Lord Chaitanya, why don't you walk like Lord Chaitanya? First of all, we don't dress like Lord Chaitanya. I mean, the, the acharyas realize not appropriate for the sage. And the only reason they dress that way is because that's what everybody else was doing. There's absolutely no evidence that uh, Lord Chaitanya or the six Goswamis uh, were innovative. In fact, Lord Chaitanya dressed as a sannyasi the way the impersonal sannyasis were dressing because he wanted to fit in. And that's why when Sanatana Goswami came to Lord Chaitanya and he had the kind of like that designer chatter, that fancy <laughs> chatter, and Lord Chaitanya said, no, he said, you know, throw that out and, and just gets like rags. And that's what he did. Why? It's not a rule. It's not an absolute rule. It's because that's what everybody else was doing. In fact, I did something which, I hope you appreciate this, that um, I actually looked at the Bhagavatam at every mention in the Bhagavatam, which Lord Chaitanya said is our main scripture. I looked at every mention of dress. And, and for example, one thing it says is that sannyasis, what it usually says is that number one, they should go naked, which you wouldn't appreciate if I did that. But it's, <laughs> especially because of my age, but, it was, but it's uh, pretty, pretty awful. But it's, the, the point is, there are all these, there, I mean, I actually compiled a list of these because I, I was so I had this little debate with this other GBC sannyasi who was making these statements that I thought were a little silly. But the Bhagavatam, there are many verses in the Bhagavatam that says that, you know, go naked, that a brahmachari should wear deer skin. It's in the Bhagavatam. Why didn't Prabhupada tell his brahmachari disciples, and, and in those days, most of his disciples were brahmacharis, brahmacharis, why didn't he tell them to wear deer skin or to go naked? It's in the Shastra. But he did sanction the sannyasgar and all that, jodis and sorry. But do you know where it comes from? No, actually, you need to read my papers. There's, there's, there's the mythological version of Prabhupada, what he said, and there's what Prabhupada actually said. Well, he certainly he didn't stop it. I mean, everybody no, but there's a, there's a statement, but in Veda Base, which I quote, this, this is you know recorded, documented statement of Prabhupada, I, one devotee says, uh, Prabhupada, why do you have us wear these dhotis? And Prabhupada said, it was your idea. <laughs> I didn't say you had to do it. This is Prabhupada speaking. So it's very interesting how when Prabhupada makes these very liberal Krishna West type things, statements, the devotees, so many devotees just sort of filter it out. So a big part of Prabhupada's practical instructions is systematically filtered out by many devotees, just filtered out. Do you yourself take everything verbatim that Prabhupada said and agree with it? I take, I take verbatim one very, you see, what you're talking about now is an area called hermeneutics, which is how do you rationally understand either the statements in a sacred text or a sacred authority like Prabhupada? And one thing Prabhupada said, which I take very seriously, and which you could say is a governing principle, because Prabhupada's many things, like, you know, you have to follow the guru, this, that. But there's a governing principle that Prabhupada said, and it's also in Shastra, that we accept guru, sadhu, and Shastra. And Prabhupada also says, and I mean, I, I recorded all these things. 
Prabhupada says, of the three, Guru, Sadhu, and Shastra, the central authority, the main authority is Shastra. Prabhupada was also asked point blank by Jaidweta Swami, is a pure, does a pure, is a pure devotee infallible? Does a pure devotee know everything? And Prabhupada was like, are you serious? What kind of question is that? He said, I'm not God. Only God is infallible. Only God knows everything. So it's kind of like, it's almost like this backdoor in personalism where you can't say Prabhupada's God. So, okay, Prabhupada's not God, but now we'll just attribute to him all the qualities of God. He knows everything. He never makes mistakes. Prabhupada made very clear that he is only infallible. And he said this over and over again, but again, no one quotes these things. That Prabhupada is only infallible when he's repeating Shastra. If Prabhupada's giving his opinion on World War II or let's say gendered intelligence or whatever it may be, it's not infallible. He said it's not. So you cannot, it's actually logically impossible, which is a technical philosophical term, which I'll explain. It's logically impossible to say that everything Prabhupada said is true. Logically impossible, like for example, a square circle. Well, I'm explaining. You have, if you don't understand these things, we're just gonna, it's gonna be like a born again discussion. A square circle is logically impossible. If I say, for example, there's a unicorn in California, you can empirically try to verify or disprove that. You can search everywhere in California and say, I didn't see a unicorn. But if I say I saw a square circle, you don't have to go out and look for one because if you know what the English word square means, and if you know what the English word circle means, there cannot be a square circle. There cannot be such, a, it's logically impossible. So Prabhupada said that I make mistakes. Now, if you say I accept everything that Prabhupada says is true, you have to accept as true that he, that he makes mistakes. But then if you say Prabhupada doesn't make mistakes, but if everything Prabhupada says is true, he doesn't make mistakes. But if he doesn't make mistakes, his statement that he does make mistakes is untrue. And so therefore what I'm saying is that um, I don't wanna, you know, I wasn't born in a fanatical born again Christian family, thank God. I mean, you know, nothing wrong with Jesus. I just, I, I have a big problem with religious fanatics. I don't care what religion it is. I have a is big- Is um, Operating in a fanatic, fanatic. No, but, but no, but there are within ISKCON, within every Gaudiya Vaishnava, and within every religion on earth, there are people who are fanatical. And, 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 and the definition of fanatical is that your claim, what you claim to be true, goes beyond what you actually understand or what you, what you can reasonably demonstrate. Because fanaticism is a psychological type. So in every group on earth, there are fanatical stamp collectors. There are fanatical biologists. There are fanatical Hindus, Muslims, Jews, Hare Krishnas. They're fanatical atheists. It's a psychological type. And every human organization on earth has a certain percentage of that psychological type. It's just like if you have a large movement, you're gonna have a certain percentage of brown-eyed people, blue-eyed people, people from this country. It's just, you know, it's statistics. So I don't like fanaticism. I actually have a, an aversion to fanaticism. I really dislike it. I definitely What? I'm just trying to raise yeah. questions. No, that's fine. No, no problem. We're just, we're. I know you're, you're kind of against the grain, so to speak, 
of the humane, um, you know, movement? Uh, less and less. You know, it depends on who you talk to. When I, you know, when they post, I don't personally go on the social media. I mean, I'm doing it right now, but I don't. I never personally go on it. But I just push two buttons and then I push the last button. But it's, I mean, when I when they post things and tens of thousands of people, devotees, not non-devotees, tens of thousands of people are following a lot of the stuff I'm doing. Tens of thousands. Now, if you live in certain parts of the world, or if you talk to certain devotees, you know, you'll conclude that I'm the anti-Krishna. That I'm like the worst thing since, I don't know, you know, burnt doll or something. <laughs> I have a question. Was Prabhupada stuck in the 18th century of colonial India? No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't at all stuck. He created a powerful movement. I'm just going to chime in for a second. Yeah. Um, the, the time is getting a Yeah, actually, past. I'm going to do it. So, so, I mean, I know that, that this, this question has been back for, for quite a long period of time, but in, in observance of everyone's schedule and perhaps tomorrow plans. Yeah, thank you. And for your plans as well. Yeah, yeah anyway, so thank you all very much. And uh, as they say in Sanskrit, Tatsarvang Janaha, which means in Sanskrit, that's all, folks. Thank <laughs> <laughs>